We do appreciate the presence of each one this evening. I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22 as we begin tonight. Matthew chapter 22. Appreciate uh, those who have led us in our worship today, both this morning and this evening, and job well done. And those who have uh, participated from the pew, again, job well done. And uh, hope that I don't detract from the effectiveness of our worship today and what we might accomplish here, uh, both this morning and this evening. Matthew chapter 22, uh, Jesus is asked a series of questions. You might remember the questions. The first one has to do with whether or not it's right or appropriate for uh, to give tribute to Caesar. The Pharisees come and they ask him that. And you might remember that Jesus says, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then the second question is really the one that we want to focus a little bit more on as we introduce our subject tonight. In verse 23, on that day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher Moses said, If a man dies, having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first one married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother, also the second and the third, down to the seventh, and last of all, the woman died. Now in the resurrection, now remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. So there's a trap. You know, they're, they're attempting to, to trap Jesus in what he says. So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Jesus responds and says, You are mistaken, not understanding the scripture or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. I'm not so much interested in this lesson about their question or Jesus' response to the question about the resurrection. I'm really interested in what he says there in verse 29. You're mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures. You don't understand the Scriptures. You see, they had access to the Scriptures. Genesis through Malachi. And Jesus expected them to read those Scriptures and study the Scriptures and understand them. Your mistake is you don't understand the Scriptures, and so you've reached incorrect conclusions because of your failure to understand what God has, has taught. We have Scriptures. They've been left for us. They've been written down for us. That's what a Scripture is. It's something that's written. It's been preserved for us. We have access to it. God expects us to read the Scripture and to be able to understand it and draw the logical, necessary conclusions that apply to us ourselves. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 15, Paul tells Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God, and part of that is to learn how to handle accurately the Word, the Word of Truth. And that's what suggests to us that it can be handled inaccurately. And so Paul encourages Timothy to learn the Scripture and learn to handle them correctly, we might say. Which again would imply at least the possibility that they could be handled incorrectly. Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for not knowing the Scriptures. We want Him to approve of us because we've learned to understand them correctly and handle them correctly. 
And I thought that just leads into the opening question. If someone were to ask you, or ask us, do you t- understand the Bible literally? Well, most of us would answer yes as quickly as possible. Do you understand the Bible literally? Do you interpret the Bible literally? And I think most of us would be quick to say, absolutely. That's right. Yes, we absolutely do. Well, we have no problem understanding that there was a historical figure named Jesus who came from Nazareth. We understand he said and did the things that are recorded in the New Testament. We understand that Joseph and David and and, uh, people like Hezekiah were were uh, historical figures, were to take their accounts literally, or the accounts that contain information about them, were to take those literally. But should we interpret the prophecy of Malachi concerning the coming of Elijah literally? In in Malachi chapter 4, just about the last thing written in the book of Malachi, in uh, verse 5, God says, Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Should we understand that literally? Should we be looking for the return of Elijah the prophet? Well, some in Jesus' day were looking for the literal return of Elijah the prophet. But in Matthew chapter 17, the disciples asked Jesus, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished, so that also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Uh, Were they to take literally the prophecy concerning Elijah? Well, no. It's not literal Elijah who's coming. It's someone like Elijah who would go forth in the power and spirit of Elijah. And And so you wouldn't understand the fulfillment of Elijah literally. It's it's fulfilled in John the Baptist, who was like Elijah. In the book of uh, Deuteronomy, the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, the scriptures refer to God as a rock. Is God literally a rock? (laughs) Of course not. The Bible tells us that in heaven there are going to be streets of, of gold and gates of pearl. Do we understand that literally? In Psalm 23 verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Is the Lord really a shepherd? Does he have sheep? Does he shear them? Does he make wool for himself out of the wool? Well, well, of course not. And so, do you understand the Bible literally? Do you interpret the Bible literally? Well, those, those observations that we've made about the coming of Elijah and the Lord being a rock and, and the Lord being our shepherd, those observations tell us that, well, we maybe need to give a little bit of thought to that question before we answer too quickly. We take Bible study seriously. We want to handle the Word of God accurately. We want to understand what Scripture teaches. We want to avoid making mistakes in interpreting the Bible that will lead us astray and lead us to wrong conclusion, sometimes very serious error. And so tonight's lesson is just a lesson, of, really it's just a lesson about Bible study, about how to study the Bible, and particularly one feature of Bible study. Really, it's the first of two parts. I'm going to get to the second part in another lesson. I got to thinking about this lesson. I thought, well, 
that'll either be one really long lesson or maybe two shorter lessons. And so I decided, let's just make two shorter lessons out of it. Shorter in comparison to the long lesson it would have been if they were combined together, okay? So don't get your hopes up too much. You know, much of the Bible should be understood literally. That is, the Bible speaks in a simple, straightforward, direct way. And we should understand it to mean exactly what it says. It says this, it means this. And so that's one way we could describe a literal understanding of the Bible or anything else for that matter. It says this, it means this. For example, the Bible refers to actual people and actual places and actual events. The New Testament describes with precision the time and place where various events occur. A good illustration of that is Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we'll know that the Bible goes to great lengths to identify the exact place and time that the things that are described occur. So verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the Word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And so look at the detail, the, the historical detail given in that particular passage. And so these people in places, some of these in this particular passage, but others in the Bible, can be corroborated by material outside the Bible. And so we have every reason to take these, the events described in passages like this, every reason to take them literally. It means that this occurred during the lifetime of these particular people, and the Word of God literally came to John, the son of Zechariah, and said this. So we have every reason to take that literally. The New Testament writers, and well, including Jesus, I understand Jesus wasn't a New Testament writer, but uh, for our purposes we'll say Jesus and the New Testament writers took Old Testament accounts literally. Look at Romans chapter 5, for example. Romans chapter 5 and, and verse 12. Therefore, as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. For until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not in the world where there is no law. And nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And so Paul takes... Adam to be a, a, an historical figure. He's just as historical as Moses was, and what happened to Adam is a type or corresponds to what happened with Jesus. And that's, that's not an isolated case. All through the New Testament, Adam is treated as a historical figure, an accurate figure, or a historical figure. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find another similar situation in verse 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. You know, they would, it would do damage to the idea that Jesus is a life-giving spirit if there really were no Adam who was a life-giving soul, wouldn't it? And so the very fact that Adam is a historical figure makes him correspond to Jesus as a literal historical figure. And we can multiply that many times over. Jesus considered Noah to be an historical figure. In Matthew chapter 24, and verse 34, 
Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. My words will not pass away. But if that day and hour, no, is, no, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And so, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. What does that mean? It's mythological? The coming of the Son of Man is legendary? <laughs> well, well, of course not. And so you can see how oh, ineffective it would be for Jesus to draw an analogy about His coming using an, a mythological figure, an imaginary figure. And so the fact that Jesus takes Noah to be a, an actual, real, historical figure, and when we read his story, we take it literally, it says this, it means this, well, that's borne out in the case of, of, of Christ's use of Noah. Now, it was observed here recently that if we're Christians... If we're followers of Jesus, it ought to matter to us how, how Jesus lived, how, what He taught, or what He said, how He used the Scripture. And so we're followers of Jesus. If Jesus takes Noah to be a historical figure, well then, that ought to have an effect on the way we understand these Old Testament figures as well. We can multiply this several times over. Abraham, of course, is considered a, a real historical figure. We understand the accounts that talk about Abraham literally. Uh, the figures in Hebrews chapter 11 as well, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and others. David, a real historical figure who, who died, and his tomb is with us to this day, you remember? Now, you know, if, if David wasn't a real figure, we can see how that makes really very ineffective uh, the point that the New Testament writers make when they use David as an illustration. Now here's a, a, a rather serious uh, example of all that. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. This is verse 38. Matthew 12 verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, now that's a serious statement, isn't it? Just as Jonah, three days, three nights in the, in the, ground, in the, in the sea monster, so Jesus will be... Three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. But you can see how that point loses its effectiveness if Jonah isn't a real figure. And so a critic could say, well, what do you, what do you mean as Jonah was three? There was no Jonah. The story is just a legend. It's just a myth. And so really what you're doing is you're basing this important point about the resurrection on really a non-entity. And so Jesus takes the story of Adam literally, the story of Noah literally, the story of Jonah literally. And it's important that we do. Now this holds true not only for historical material, but doctrinal material as well. For example, look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. And there are lots of ways we might illustrate this, but Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 says, "...much more than having now been justified by His blood..." We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. We take that literally? That we are justified by His blood? Well, absolutely. 
And so the Bible speaks literally when it speaks doctrinally as well. Paul argues that the righteous shall live by faith. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Other passages quote Genesis 15, 6 as well. The righteous shall live by faith. Speaks literally. Are we to take that literally and actually put our faith in the man Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. We understand that literally. In fact, in Acts chapter 2 and verses 38 and following, you remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. At least 3,000 took him literally. <laughs> because, you know, 3,000 received the word and were baptized. And so, yes, much of the Bible we are to take literally. It says this, it means this. That comes to the historical accounts, but also comes to when it comes to doctrinal accounts as well, doctrinal statements. Now, some make a mistake by thinking otherwise. For example, there are those who suggest that we should understand the New Testament teaching about the resurrection of Jesus figuratively. They, they deny the actual historical resurrection of Christ. It, it, it never happened, according to them. And what the Bible means to say is that the apostles, though they were discouraged and disillusioned, after a little while, they, they sort of renewed the movement that was started by Jesus. And they went out and, and started preaching and proclaiming in the name of Jesus and tried to make disciples to Jesus. So, and so in that sense, there was, a, there was sort of a, a dying out and a resurrection of the Jesus movement. You see, we don't understand all that figuratively. Well, of course, the cause of Jesus was kept alive by the apostles, but they claimed He had actually literally been raised from the dead. And they say, we are witnesses of these things. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, we saw it. When threatened, they stood firm. When they were beaten, they didn't recant. <laughs> when they were put in prison, they continued to confess it nonetheless. They claimed that He spoke with us after he was raised from the dead, we handled him. Remember Jesus offers himself to Thomas? Here, look at my hands. Examine them. Look at my side. Examine it. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 36, Luke tells us that Jesus ate with them after the resurrection of the dead. We have every reason to take the bodily resurrection of Jesus literally. When the women went to the tomb, they found it empty. Jesus had been raised from the dead. And he appeared to the apostles. They went out and proclaimed it. And even when their life was threatened, they stood firm. And so do we take the Bible literally? Yes, much of the Bible is to be understood literally. It means exactly what it says. It speaks in a straightforward way and should be understood in its plainest sense. But sometimes the Bible uses figurative language or figures of speech. Now, there's not anything unusual about this. We use figures of speech all the time, which is a figure of speech, isn't it? <laughs> and so our, our conversations are filled with figures of speech. We use them very, very often. They're common devices used in communication. What do we mean by a figure of speech? Well, it's a word or a phrase intentionally used in a manner that differs from its common literal usage to convey an idea or to make a point. I'm about to bust. You know, oh boy, you know I ate so much, I'm about to bust. 
Well, not, not literally. <laughs> it just means I'm, I'm full. I don't think I could eat any more. Or when I say I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. We don't mean that literally. We're, we're, we're using the phrase could eat a horse to suggest that I'm so hungry I could eat a lot of food. And we could say it that way, but it wouldn't be nearly as colorful. Or he's older than dirt. Or he's as poor as Job's turkey or something like that. Those are figures of speech, and we use figures of speech quite commonly. Many figures of speech could fall into two categories. The Bible uses figures of speech. You know, it, and I've made this point before, and I think it's a valid point. God has chosen to communicate His will to us in words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs. And so we ought to be interested in that. We ought to be interested in words and phrases and clauses and sentences. If God chooses to reveal His Word to us in figures of speech, we, we ought to be interested in learning something about this so, so that we don't make the mistake the Pharisees made and misunderstand the Scriptures. Figures of speech often fall into two categories, comparisons or substitutions. When I said, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, I'm substituting eating a horse for I could eat a lot of food, I'm so hungry. And so it's a substitution. Sometimes a comparison. The Lord is my shepherd, or the Lord is the rock. Well, now the Lord's not a literal rock. He's like a rock. He's being compared to a rock in some way. Those that uh, study these things have given various figures of speech names. Metonymy. The name of a thing substituted for another with which is closely related. Uh, Jesus took a cup and gave it to His disciples and said, Drink ye all of it, or all of you drink from it. He, he, he's not focused on the container. He uses the word cup as a substitute for the contents of the cup. We'll have more to say that, about that in, in just a few minutes. We'll come back to that. But that's uh, metonymy. Synecdoche. When a part is used for the whole. A metaphor, a simile, hyperbole, a euphemism. A euphemism is when an unoffensive word is substituted for an offensive word. And so we, we know what euphemisms are. And so if there's something you're going to say that you're afraid that it might offend the sensibilities of someone, and you kind of refer to that, but you do it in a less offensive, maybe roundabout way, well, that's a euphemism. Oh, they've been sleeping together. That's, that's a euphemism. We're substituting that phrase sleeping together for what they're actually doing together. So there are all kinds of figures of speech. Common figures of speech are light and darkness. God is light and Him is no darkness at all. A figure of speech that's so well known to those who are involved in it, the reader and the writer, or the speaker and the listener, is so well known that it doesn't need an explanation. It's called an idiom. And God is light and Him is no darkness at all. It's just about idiomatic. We, we know it almost implicitly what the idea being conveyed is. Another common figure of speech is sleep for death. Many are still alive, but there are some that are asleep, Paul said, of the witnesses of the resurrection. It means they had already died. Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the road. It's not a literal road, but He's like a road. 
in that if you follow what he says, he will take you to your destination. So those are figures of speech. Should a figure of speech be understood literally? It would be a real mistake to do so, and egregious errors would be made if we did. Is God a literal rock? Well, no, God is like a rock in some way. Should we use only one container for the fruit of the vine in observing the Lord's Supper? And there are those who say, absolutely, we are required and to use only one container for the fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper. You see, Jesus took the cup. Also after, not cups. He took the cup after supper, said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in memory of me. And so Jesus took the cup. But, but we've seen that the word cup there is used as a figure of speech. The container is used in the passage, is named in the passage, but it stands for the fruit of the vine that's in the container. You know how I know that? Because he says in that very passage we read, do this as often as you drink it. You see, we don't drink the container, do we? We drink the contents of the container. And so there are clues within the text itself as to whether we should take that literally or figuratively. And so that particular position is arrived at because there's a misunderstanding about a figure of speech. So it's important that we know something about figures of speech. We can make serious errors if we don't understand figures of speech. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He come. We need to understand that the Bible uses figurative language, as all literary works do. We need to be able to identify them when we find them and strive to understand the message being communicated to us. I've got one more point to make, and then we'll close it up for tonight. We'll talk about a specific kind of figure of speech that I'm going to call symbolic language. If literal language is direct, says this, it means this. Symbolic language is indirect. It says this, but it means that. Now that's what figures of speech are. They're indirect form of communication. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, but it means the Lord will provide for me. The Lord will take care of me. And the Lord will see that I have the things that I need in much the same way that a shepherd does his sheep. And so it says this, but it, it means that. A symbol is a thing, a word, a phrase, an event, an object, a number, or a color that represents something else. It represents something else. Sometimes a spiritual idea will be symbolized or represented by a physical symbol. Now, we kind of touched on one in our reading tonight. The Lord tells David that he's going to build a house for him. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 11, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Well, is the Lord going to get some lumber and some rock and, and build? No, that's, that's not the idea there, there is it? That's, that's symbolic language, isn't it? The, the word house really represents the idea that God is going to establish David's dynasty. The word house in that particular statement refers to David's dynasty. And so the Lord is going to establish a dynasty for David and ultimately refers to the eternal reign of David's son who is Christ. And so the word house represents or is a symbol for 
David's dynasty, and eventually the coming of Christ. Symbolic language is found frequently in poetry. In the 11th Psalm and verse 4, the psalmist says that the Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now, does the Lord have a literal throne in heaven? Well, no, no. The word throne is really a symbol, isn't it? It's a symbol for God's authority. He has the authority to command people and expect them to obey as a king would command his people and expect them to obey. And so words like that suggest to us that they're used figuratively or symbolically to communicate to us an important idea about the point the author is making. Another illustration is the 18th Psalm, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The Lord is my shield. Well, He's not a literal shield. He's like a shield. So the the word shield symbolizes the protection that God offers. He is our horn. He's our strength. An idea that symbolizes the idea of strength. And so the Bible uses symbolic language, which is simply another way of saying it uses Figurative language. It's found in, symbolic language is found in prophetic writings as well. The book of Revelation is filled with symbolic language. The number 666, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, the dragon, the woman. The numbers are used symbolically. The number 7, the number 10, the number 1,000. The number 144,000 are all symbols. Remember what a symbol is? It says this, but it means that. It's representing an idea. It's communicating an idea in an indirect sort of way. In the book of Revelation, the colors, red, black, white, and perhaps others, are symbols of ideas or spiritual ideas, in this case, communicated indirectly. Daniel contains a great... uh, a great amount of symbolic language as well. In Daniel chapter 2, you remember Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream, and he sees this figure, and it's made of different kinds of metal. It's, it's gold and silver and, and brass and iron and clay. And, and It's not that David or, or Daniel anticipated a literal statue like that. There, an idea is being communicated in a symbolic way, in a figurative way. As a matter of fact, when we go to the explanation... We find that each part of the statue represents four kingdoms. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar also saw a stone that's cut out of a mountain without hands, and it grew and filled the earth. And that's the kingdom that God's going to establish in the days of the fourth empire. It's going to grow and fill the earth. It would be a mistake for the Jews of Jesus' day to be looking for a stone. Now, where's that stone that's growing? I'd like to see that. Now, they they understand that here's a symbol that represents an event that's going to take place. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, Isaiah describes Christ as a shoot from the stem of Jesse. This symbolizes or represents Jesus' ancestral connection to David and Jesus' fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that I'm going to establish your throne forever and your seed or your offspring will rule over it forever. And so again, it would be a mistake for the Jews. Now, where is that, where is that stump out here? I want to see that. No, they understood this is a, a symbol. It's representing an idea. Uh, it's looking forward to the, the coming of Christ. 
We'd make a mistake if we took symbolic language literally, contrary to the author's intent. If the Jews looked literally for a stone cut out without hands that grew to fill the earth, or searched for a tree stump for a new growth shoot, or to interpret the numbers of Revelation literally instead of symbolically as they're meant to be, we we would be making a mistake, wouldn't we? So how, how do we identify this kind of language when we come across it in the Bible? How, how do we identify that? Well, we look at the author's intention. And so we want to take figuratively what the author intends to be taken figuratively. And we want to take literally what the author intends to be taken literally. So how do we identify that? Well, there, there are several things that we can keep in mind. How does the author use this word or use this idea throughout his writing? And so you look at the, Paul's writings and you come across the word flesh, for example, and that's a figure of speech and often in Paul, we say always, but often in Paul. So you look at the way Paul uses the word flesh in his writings and you can get a good idea of what he intends in a particular passage. We consider the immediate context as well. We look for clues in the context itself that might might help us understand whether this is to be taken literally or figuratively. We saw an illustration of that a moment ago when considering the container for the fruit of the vine, we're to drink the cup. Well, that gives us a clue that the word cup is not being used literally there, but figuratively to refer to the fruit of the vine contained by the container itself. Here's another good illustration of that. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4. We've got it on our banners up here. Speaking of the 144,000, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste, or they've, they've kept themselves virgins, some versions say. And so are we to conclude that the 144,000, there's only going to be 144,000 literally that take that number literally that only 144,000 are going to be saved? Well, well, here's a clue in the text. These are people who have no sexual experience at all. <laughs> well, well, of course, of course that, that gives us a clue that this is a passage that's describing an idea figuratively or symbolically. Married people get to go to heaven. <laughs> Unmarried people are able to go to heaven. And so that, see, there's a clue in the context itself that would help us to see, oh, this is a a passage that's to be taken spiritually or or figuratively. We can consider the type of literature the statement is found in. Apocalyptic literature makes frequent use of symbols. For example, the book of Revelation or the book of Ezekiel or book of Daniel makes frequent use of symbols or symbolic language. Is the language found in a dream or a vision or something like that? Symbols or symbolic language are often found in, in dreams and visions. And so I thought about Pharaoh's dreams. And he dreams of the cows coming up out of the Nile, and there are fat cows, and there are skinny cows, and the fat cows eat the skinny cows. And, and so the dream lends itself to symbolic language. Joseph, uh, Pharaoh isn't, isn't dreaming about cows, is he? <laughs> Uh, he's dreaming about uh, the production or lack of production of uh, grain in Egypt in the coming years. And Joseph interprets that, interprets the dream, and, and of course things work out very well. 
Consider the overall context of the Bible. And so consider the, does the New Testament give us any indication that an Old Testament passage is used symbolically? We saw an illustration of that as well, about the coming of Elijah. Should we be looking for the coming of Elijah literally today? Well, no, the New Testament tells us that that's fulfilled in John the Baptist. And so look at the overall context of the Bible and see if we get any clues from that. Again, we, we want to handle aright the word of truth. If we don't understand the scriptures, we can make serious errors. And so we want to do our best to apply ourselves to understand the way the Bible communicates God's message to us. Are we to understand the Bible literally? Well, yes, when the author intends for us to. But sometimes the Bible uses figurative language or symbolic language, and we want to be able to identify that as well. You see, we want to avoid the mistakes that can be made otherwise, some of them serious. Now, I said that this was a two-parter, and so I know you're thinking, glad he divided up into two parts, because <laughs> we're out of time. But what I want to talk about in the next installment is Israel and the land. Does Israel, the, the geopolitical nation of Israel, have a right to the promised land, have a divine right to the promised land today? A lot of fighting going on in the Middle East, and a lot of it's over the land. What are we, what are we to think about all of that? I'm sure there's a lot of discussion, a lot of talk, a lot of speculation about what's going on and what's going to happen next and what's about to take place. All we want to do is we want to look at what Scripture tells us about Israel and the land. But we laid a little bit of foundation for that study tonight. And so a little tease for uh, the next time I speak on a Sunday night, whenever that, <laughs> whenever that is, uh, given the holidays. be a couple of weeks, I'm sure. I hope you'll come back for that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to study from your word. We're thankful, Father, that you've revealed the word uh, to us, that it's been preserved for us, that we have access to it. Father, we pray that we will take advantage of the opportunities we have to study it and to learn it. We want to be able to handle it accurately or handle it correctly. We, we want to avoid the mistakes that lead to error. We know, Father, that's a real possibility if we're not diligent students of the Bible. And so we pray, Father, that we'll have a heart that wants to learn and that we'll be lifelong learners of your will and your word. Uh, our Father, we pray that uh, what we've done here today has been pleasing to you, that we'll take the things that we've learned, that we'll apply them in our lives, and that we'll be uh, uh, people that are following Jesus, following him, dedicated to him, different from the world around us, those that immerse themselves in the Word, take it seriously, allow it to have an impact on, on their lives. We pray that those are the kinds of people that we, we are and that will continue to be. Again, Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the message of salvation that's found in it, centering around Jesus Christ who came into this world and gave Himself, shed His blood on the cross that our sins might be forgiven. Father, we pray that we'll always have that in the forefront of our mind as we go throughout our lives every day. We pray that, Father, as we follow Him, the way, the truth, and the life, that He will lead us into eternal glory. We pray these things in His name. Amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, but you're ready to become a Christian,